Fly Fishing Internet Radio, your source for learning more about fly fishing in cold water, warm water, and salt water. Hello, I'm Roger Maves, your host for tonight's show. On this broadcast, we'll be featuring Landon Mayer, and he'll be answering your most important questions on hunting for giant trout. This show will be 90 minutes in length, and we're broadcasting live over the Internet. If you'd like to ask Landon a question, just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. And while you're there, make sure you sign up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. You'll see a form in the right-hand column. Just fill in your name and email address, and we'll keep you informed. This broadcast is being recorded and will be available for playback on our website about 48 hours after the show ends. So if you have to leave early, you can return to our website at your convenience and listen to the recording at any time. The content of this broadcast is Copyrighted is the property of the Knowledge Group Inc. Doing business is Ask About Fly Fishing. Recordings or transcriptions of this program cannot be distributed or sold in any form. When we return, we'll be talking with Landon Mayer about the hunt for giant trout. Baja Fly Fishing Company is dedicated to fulfilling your vacation dreams. And just so there's no mistake, they derive as much pleasure helping a novice improve as they do fishing with a pro. From the casual to the hardcore, they can match your expectations with their experience in coaching. A vacation with Baja fly fishing is more than a fishing trip. It's a full-on Baja experience that you will remember forever. They know the Baja for 40 years of traveling its back roads, kayaking its shoreline, surfing and snorkeling while pioneering the fly fishing techniques that have evolved into the tactics used today. They're well-versed in fly fishing the beach and kayaks and pongas and are well-versed in all tackle types. Join them in the pursuit of roosterfish, dorado, marlin, sailfish, wahoo, jack creval, yellowfin, skipjack, and many other species. Learn more about Baja Fly Fishing Company by visiting their website at BajaFlyFish.com. Again, that's BajaFlyFish.com. Uh, let's see. Landon, are you playing uh, in the computer in the background? No. No. Okay. It is somebody else. Uh, it looks like feedback, or it sounds like feedback from your uh, broadcast you just did. Uh, okay. Yeah, there's a, a delay. Um, okay. I think I muted somebody that's on the phone that uh, may have been playing it. Okay. Good. Okay. Um well, before we introduce Landon, I'd like to let you know about the great prizes we have to give away tonight. For our drawing tonight, we'll be giving away a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International and a one-year subscription to the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. And um, so you have two chances to win uh, one of those prizes. Now, if you haven't registered yet for the drawing, you can do so now. Just go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and look for that link under Landon's section that says click here to register for our drawing. Click on the link, fill out the form, we'll announce the winners at the end of the show. We'll also be giving away a, a copy of Landon's uh, latest book, The Hunt for Giant Trout, courtesy of Stackpole Books. So um, here's how you can win Landon's book. Uh, you have to be the first person to answer the question or questions. Sometimes I ask two-part questions uh, at the end of the show, and uh, it will be something that Landon and I talk about during the show. So listen closely, take notes, and, uh, and type fast, and you may have an opportunity to win The Hunt for the Giant Trout. Now, of course, if you don't win it, there's always Amazon and uh, Landon's website where you can get the book. So uh, you also see a link in uh, the right-hand column of uh, the show tonight on our uh, website, and you can click through there and also see other of Landon's books as well there. 
And the runner-up tonight will also be receiving a prize, and that's going to be Landon's uh, new DVD called Mastering the Short Game. So uh, you have uh, two chances to win in that question and answer uh, play that we have tonight. So uh, take notes, listen closely, and uh, I hope you win. Our guest tonight is Landon Mayer. Landon has been guiding professionally in Colorado on the South Platte River since 1997. His success in catching trout is fueled by an addiction to pursue large trout with small flies and lightweight fly fishing equipment. He shares these tips and secrets in his books, Colorado Best Fly Fishing, Sight Fishing for Trout, and How to Catch the Biggest Trout of Your Life, in addition to two DVs, Landing the Trout of Your Life and Weapons of Mass Production. And also his latest book, The Hunt for Giant Trout, and latest DVD, Mastering the Short Game. Landon's passion for fly fishing has allowed him to make several noteworthy contributions to the sport. Among them are his appearances as the headliner in international sports exposition shows and also Landon also travels to fly fishing-related organizations, regions in the mid-Atlantic, West, Pacific Northwest, Southwest, and Southern states, teaching through guided trips, fly fishing classes, presentation, and demonstrations of his techniques. Landon is also a contributing editor, a writer for Fly Fishermen and High Country Angler Magazines. His contributions have also been featured in publications such as Field and Stream, American Angler, Southwest Fly Fishing, and Fish and Fly Magazines. Landon, welcome back to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. Thank you, Roger. It's a pleasure to be back, and thanks for having me back on the show. It's uh, it's always fun to get on and discuss fishing. Yeah, yeah, and uh, from what we were just talking about, you just squeaked in under the snowstorm, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Wherever I travel, it seems like the Colorado weather follows me, and oh, it followed right. me back home, which is it's great to see the powder, though. We'll definitely need it come fishing season as far as spring and going into the summer months, so it's exciting, and again, it's great to be back home with you. Always a pleasure, Roger. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, you know, you, you sound like you maybe Jeff Courier has rubbed off on you. You know they call him Monsoon Courier. So you know. <laughs> I think, I think <laughs> everywhere so, yeah. he goes, there's a, a storm or a typhoon. Or exactly. <laughs> no, I, I think that that's for sure true. Jeff and Granny are great friends, and I think that's rubbed off. And following me are are weather and cold <laughs> and and moisture too. So I I think yeah. you hit it right on the nose there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, good. Good. Well, let's let's jump in here. Um, you know, you sure. just got your new book published this uh, this year, um, Hunt for Giant Trout. Tell us a bit right. about, um, you know, what inspired you to write that, put it all together, and also how did you select the locations in there? Yeah, you bet. It's uh, So the Hunt for Giant Trout, 25 top locations in the U.S. to catch a trophy. And really what this book is designed for is to get inside of the mind of predators hunting predators. And when I say predators hunting predators, inside the mind of so many great anglers throughout the U.S. that also contributed to this title. And, you know, the reason for the book for me was that we learned so much from the water and the fish, and giant trout or large trout specifically almost become their own species of trout. They're incredibly selective. They're wise. They're challenging. And I think so many of us realize through time or just years on the water how addictive and, and how much fun it can be pursuing them. So that's really why we designed the pages. And to start off, to take note, this book would not be possible without the so many of great anglers. Fifty contributing authors, anglers, and guides gave their knowledge to put into this text from Dave Whitlock to Tommy Lynch, Pat Dorsey, Blaine Chocolate, 
the list goes on. Steve Henderson, Patrick Folkrod, Arlo Townsend. And with everybody coming together as a community, they really did devote a lot of their information to the pages. And, and that's what led to the 25 locations. You know, Roger, when I started this project with Stackpool Books and Jay Nichols, we were thinking about, you know, 20, 25, 30, 35 locations. What we realized quickly, instead of selecting the location, we relied on the location that a lot of these anglers who are in the book pursue their fish. So that was easy to set that up where 25 of these locations are attached to the great contributors to the pages, and that's really what made this all come together. And I'll say first and foremost, that was not an easy task. There's a lot of fisheries that our great waterways produce giant fish and great opportunities for the anglers, and I wish I wish we could include them all, but I'm very happy where we ended up with the 25. Yeah, it looks like you pretty much stuck to the U.S., right? Um, didn't uh, yes. venture up into Within Canada. the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah. absolutely, yep. Uh, Just to make it a... more consistent for travels, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you did hit some, some locations up in Alaska, which we know there's always – great fishing up there but um, there were some others in there that that kind of surprised me and some that i didn't even know about um so uh yeah it's um and uh, and some local haunts here too in colorado so that's, you bet. that's terrific yeah um you bet well we've got a bunch of kind of random questions here to start out with so all on you know catching big trout and so you know they might jump around here a bit but let's let's knock these off and of course diverge if if there's a story to tell or more information to add, uh, because yeah. everybody wants to know how, how to get into a big trout. And and then we'll, we'll <laughs> later on in the show, we'll talk about a few of the um, locations that are in your book, like the Dream Stream in Colorado, South Platte, uh, Pyramid Lake, and uh, White River in Arkansas, and, um, and the South uh, Holston River in Tennessee, which is one that I didn't know about. So um, we'll, we'll try to, you know, tackle those, and, and maybe you can tell us a bit about those fisheries. So... Um, Steve in Northern California wrote in, he says, in a recent magazine article titled Mastering the Short Game, Landon wrote about viewing lanes and windows. I was hoping he could expand upon recognizing them and how to use them to our advantage. So um, so that kind of talks to your, your new DVD there. So um, you want to tell us a little bit about a preview of what they'll learn in that DVD? You bet. No, absolutely. And thank you very much for the questions to all the anglers that are listening and and chimed in, and thanks to Ross Purnell and everybody at Fly Fishermen for the chance to do that article. And, you know, when I would describe or reflect on viewing lanes and viewing windows, viewing lanes, the best way for me to describe it is let's say we have the sun directly above us or behind our back. And if we're not facing the sun, if the sun is facing our back and we look directly in front, standing on the river's edge into the river or the still water, we'll have a window that will cast in front of us that can be 10 to 20 feet long, 15 to 20 feet up or downstream or to left or right. That's a viewing lane for sunny conditions. And if we have a window, the best way to describe a window is let's say we're standing in a boulder-filled run or boulder-filled river and we're standing below a pocket where there's a calm water section or a little pool where the surface is calm and slick. And then around that is disturbance, ripples, seams, and runs. If we follow that calm window, like a window pane, as it drifts in between and around that turbulent water, that's a window. 
and we can track that window downstream and look below it. And that's two ways to describe viewing lanes. But to expand upon that, another way I like to obtain viewing lanes is during the summer, winter, but most importantly, summer and fall seasons when storms move in, unlike sunny conditions where the sun's at your back, if you face the dark cloud, the reflection of the dark cloud on the water surface also forms a viewing lane. And a viewing lane, in my opinion, is a section of water that you can see past glare or distraction on the surface and locate and hunt trout below. And a viewing window is that clear window pane that while it drifts throughout and in between turbulent water, stays calm and allows you to see trout below. So those are some tips and tricks, but really describing those two ways of locating fish beyond the rise form and really concentrating on trout below the surface. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing I read in your book um, that was uh, new to me is you talked about, when we're talking about finding fish, was um, looking for potato chips. You want to talk to that? Yeah, isn't that fun? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that was great. And what that reflects on is when whenever trout feed, I've really tried to understand trout's behavior and, most importantly, their body language over the years. The last five years in doing research for the book and video and just watching trout to the point where I encourage anglers to sometimes just put your rod down, go down to the river or reservoir's edge and just watch these fish move and naturally feed. But like, like saltwater fish, when trout feed, especially large aggressive fish for the sake now orange and yellow alligators with big brown trout, they flare their fins and their fins remain flared so that they can hold position but they also flare and extend when they hunt and feed. And because the coloration on a brown trout is minimal, where it's just on the belly or below the spots that are down from the lateral line, when their fins flare out to the side, all of that color is exposed. And if you look at a a larger trout and you see its fins, it, no joke, will at times look like a textured ruffle potato chip. So the going joke is that you have to decide whether it's regular lays or cheddar, but hunting, <laughs> right? Hunting fins that look like potato chips allows you to identify that circular color within a river bottom, and that contrast against the river bottom does stick out like a sore thumb. So that's one of the the tips in finding some of those large browns or large gator browns. Yeah, yeah, and that's um, that's something you wouldn't normally look for in my mind. You know, you're looking for right. a body shape or something like that, but that. I would think that many times it would be easier to see uh, sure, that, sure. that little it's round. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay, Ed uh, O'Donnell in uh, Delaware uh, asks, uh, if you could pick one fly for big trout, what would you choose? Ooh, that's a great question, and thank you for the uh, the question. I would say, in my personal opinion, I'll put it this way. In the past, I would have quickly said, soft tackle pheasant tail, which I still do love and believe in that pattern, with or without a tungsten bead that's hidden behind the partridge collar. Well, what I've learned lately is my favorite fly, if I could pick one fly, it would be my mare's mini leech. And the reason I say that is because leeches are a non-escaping food supply, and they're also found in every season. And to even take that one step further, they're found in rivers and still waters across the globe. So when trout see leeches, they're found in high and low water, moving in still waters, 
But the biggest benefit from the leech is that you can mimic and represent a food source that's dead or a food source that's alive. So I would have to say now it would be the mare's mini leech and sculpin olive, rust, and black. And I know Umpqua carries those in sizes 12, 14, and 16 through their catalog. But, yeah, that's my go-to now. Cool. Yeah, good, good. Uh, that's always a hard question to answer because there's so many circumstances, you know, but, uh. Um, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, just, uh, aside here, folks, I, I saw a couple people writing into me saying that they're registering for the drawing at the end of the show. Uh, there is a link on our homepage that says under land and section there where you can ask a question. It says click here to register for the drawing. That's where you register, okay? Not by, uh, filling out the form above it. So look for that link, so. Okay, with that out of the way, <laughs> um, Ed Constantini in uh, in Wisconsin asked, uh, what elements of hook selection do you consider when tying flies and fishing them for large trout? Thank you for that, Ed. I, I really do like this question. So when I do tying demos in classes, one thing I encourage anglers to do is to think about oversizing their imitation by one hook size. For example, if you're tying a size 18 fly, you could do that on a size 16 hook to large large and small proportions, but the benefit there would be increasing the hook gap and also increasing strength so that provides you more connection, penetration, and keeping trout on after they take your fly. When I'm looking for hooks, I'm specifically looking for two things. I'm looking for the hook gap. But most importantly, for larger trout, I'm looking for something that's 2x strong. And I'm also, in dealing with strength, looking to see how long the wire is to make sure that the fly doesn't straighten out after the fish hooks up. And I'll give you an example. For years and years, I would fish a 2x long 200R, which is a great Tiemco hook. Umpqua provides it. It's an awesome display of a longer body for a nymph. But the advantage is that it has a straight eye. But after I started using this in 16 or larger hook sizes, the fly would quickly straighten out because the wire on the body was not strong enough to hold the length. So then instead, I looked for an opposite or replacement, and I found the 2302, which is also 2X long, 1X stronger on the hook shank, but it has a down-forged eye. So it provides you that strength when fish run. And I can't tell you how many times in hunting large trout or just pursuing quality fish in general, you tie your box full of these amazing selections, you're cranking on the vise, twisting up what you can. You show up to the water. In many situations, I'll tie different flies with different hooks. And if a hook fails, it immediately eliminates that side or that line of display of flies for the trip. So those are the two things I look for. And, and I have just found over time that even, let's say we're going to the Stillwater bite, I've even gone so extreme to where I'll use Gamagatsu hooks like a B10S over a standard nymph or trout hook because I know if I hook a giant, you know, Pilot Peak strain Lahontan cutthroat at Pyramid Lake, there's a good chance it would straighten out at 2488, but it's not going to do that if I use the B10S from um, Gamagatsu. So that's just an example. But hooks and strength of hooks, I think, are very important. Wow, that's um, 
I didn't expect that answer. <laughs> That's very yeah. informative. And, uh, and a lot is behind that. A lot of experience is behind that answer. So, um, Absolutely. Yeah, thanks, Landon. Yeah, yeah. You bet. Um, listen, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, um, we'll, uh, we'll dig into more of uh, Landon's secrets on hooking and landing these uh, giant trout. So stay with me, and we'll be right back. Watermaster is dedicated to providing their customers with the highest quality inflatables on the market as well as unbeatable customer service and product support. They are best known for their signature products, the Watermaster Grizzly and Kodiak rafts. These rafts are lightweight, compact, durable, versatile, and safe. The Watermaster rafts are everything your personal watercraft should be. They have been used by anglers and hunters all over the world for over 15 years, including Dave Whitlock, one of fly fishing's greatest innovators. Dave said, with my Watermaster, I can enjoy more fishing per hour than any other method I've ever tried. After two and a half years of testing 15 models of kick floats, I'm convinced that Watermaster is the ultimate personal flotation craft for warm and cold water fly fishing. Visit Watermaster today and take a look at the ultimate personal flotation craft. Go to BigSkyInflatables.com. Again, that's BigSkyInflatables.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Landon Mayer about the hunt for giant trout. If you'd like to ask Landon a question, go to our homepage at askaboutflyfishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Well, Landon, I always ask my guests what's going on in your fly fishing world, and I don't know if we have enough time tonight for you to go through all what's going on in <laughs> your fly fishing world, but yeah. <laughs> give it a shot. Tell us what you've been up to. Yeah, so the new book came out, the new video, so the new book, The Hunt for Giant Trout, of course, the video, Mastering the Short Game with Headwater Media Group, and I've just been traveling, visiting so many great locations and fly fishing shows. Ben Faremsky has done a wonderful job with the fly fishing show, and I was just in Denver, New Jersey, and Atlanta, and have been visiting independent clubs and gatherings, and just really thankful everywhere I go and the chance that I have to meet so many new anglers and new people and just really give back in the sport. So that's pretty much what I've been what I've been doing lately. I have a great trip coming up at the end of the month where we're going to Lakutaya Lodge with Rafael Gonzalez and we're going to be going to Chile and doing helicopter trips to go fish Navarino Island, which is going to be a lot of fun. So that's coming up on the 20th of February. But outside of that, just really giving back, enjoying all the moments and time with my, my lovely wife, Michelle, and our four beautiful children. So I've, I've just been on the terror moving around. And like I said, weather's been following me, but I'm lucking out and dodging <laughs> the storms by hours. <laughs> well, just so uh, fun. Yeah, don't go south. I, you know, I've been talking to Terry Gunn, and he and, and Wendy Gunn just went down to Louisiana fish for uh, uh, redfish. And I guess it was just really frigid cold down there, that whole cold front moved down in there. Yeah, so, um, it's cold. Yeah, it's totally cold. unusual. Totally unusual. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. So, um, yeah. um, Landon, where can people keep track of you? What's your website URL? You bet. I'm yeah, so the website is, um, and, it, and thank you for asking that. It's revamped, and it's landonmareflyfishing.com. We have a lot of great things that are new to the website, thanks to Chris Hansen and the work that he did. We and uh, David Martin with our Imagine Designs. But we did fly pages on the website where it discusses and goes into detail about a lot of the bugs through video and text and photos, information about guided trips. We have some cool stickers with the new company note logo that was designed by Nate Carnes. We have the alligator brown trout, or what I call the gator brown. And that's all accessible online in addition to 
at Landonmare Fly Fishing on Instagram, Landonmare Fly Fishing on YouTube and Facebook. So I hope everybody has a chance to check out the new website. If you have any questions, as Roger mentioned, you can find the information for books and videos and everything, including the new video trailers through the website. There you go. There you go. So landonmareflyfishing.com. Great. You bet. Okay, let's jump back in here. Jim in Missouri, uh, he says, does fishing for monster trout come down to the expression big fish, big bait? In other words, am I wasting my time with uh, number 16 PMDs and better off tying a number two mouse rat? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Thank you for uh, for the question. And probably one of the most important topics to bring up, and we really go into detail in the book in regards to this topic. And the reason for that I believe this. So I used to think big all the time. I switched up and would think small all the time and trying to represent the best fly to catch large or giant trout. What I've realized is it all boils down to whatever food supply the fish will key in on. And when we discuss the South Holston River in Tennessee, that's a prime example. So last year I was on the river with Blaine Chocolate throwing massive streamers for large browns at high flows. Then Patrick Folkrod from South Holston River Company decided to show me the advantage of fishing midges. And no joke, within one river system, you could catch a 28- to 32-inch brown on a 5-inch streamer or a number 18 midge. So I don't think you're wasting your time going small or going big, but I always encourage people, and what I've done over the years is just try to research the food supply and find out which food is the most abundant, but also what food supplies the trout the most bang for their buck. Because large trout, while they are aggressive, they're also incredibly lazy by nature, and they'd rather eat Twinkies every three seconds than have to order a pizza just because it's easier. So I think that's really the best way to, to dive into that thought process as far as size and based on food supply, and that should help give you the answer whether it's large or small. Well, earlier you said, Landon, that um, these large fish change, you know, their nature changes, their habits change uh, into almost a, a different kind of species, right, um, once Absolutely. they reach a certain size. So, Absolutely. Um, and I'm assuming that that's affecting their feeding habits uh, greatly, right? You bet. Oh, very much so. So let's say that we have a cat attached that's blitzing all over the water's surface, and it's in the end of or middle or end of May and June or July, and these fish are crashing caddis all over the place. Yes, larger trout would eat the caddis, but I believe that instead of chasing those caddis, they'd rather eat something subsurface. So if if that's diving caddis that they can crush below the surface where they can't escape, or instead of concentrating on the evening caddis hatch, that fish may just rely on the edge of the river, and then at nightfall, instead of hunting 150 caddis, why not consume one rodent or one mouse? And that really is through trial and error that we figure out that fish would rather eat once, rest and digest, versus chasing down egg-laying caddis right before nightfall. So that brings up another question. Do you catch more larger fish subsurface than you do on the surface? You do. You do. And the reason for that is just because trout are wise in general. Selective trout, whether it be 12 or 22 pounds, 12 inches of 22 pounds, trout realize quickly 
that a lot of their predators are from above, being birds and birds of prey, and also anglers from above moving about the water. But I think that at least, I would say, 65 to 70% of large trout are caught subsurface. However, that being said, the new thing I love doing is encouraging trout to look at something on the surface and then deliver something to them subsurface. And I think a lot of the dry dropper scenarios really do allow that to take place where you trigger the fish to feed and then try to deliver something to them. But in the new book, there's a great story by Forrest Smith who used to guide in the White River, and he's displaying a trout with his client, which is a 20-pound male brown trout from the White River. And he describes in a thousand words, being a picture is worth a thousand words, in detail how that same fish they're holding two weeks before was willing to come up and eat a chubby on the surface and try to consume a hopper imitation. So large trout will consume on the surface. You just need to make sure that it's a large enough food supply or it's a non-escaping meal to where they know they're going to get the bang for their buck and that way they can consume the nutrients and protein that they need. Worth the risk, so to speak, right? <laughs> yeah, so much. Yeah. So much yeah. of it is. Or nightfall, too. You know, the low-light hours when trout. One thing also that's in the book is we took images from daytime hours with full color, and we marked these images with trout, being where the trout would hold. Then we took the exact same image and turned it black and white to represent nighttime, and then put the red marks on where trout would hold in the evening. The fish in the evening or low-light hours will move out of these deeper runs into shallow water. So that is a great way to deliver top waters in nighttime hours or if you're dealing with dusk or sunrise. You know, the low-light can supply fish a chance to feed in shallow environments, and it's easier for them to consume something on the surface. So timing the hatch or timing that food supply for top water subsurface also plays plays a big part, and we really do go in depth and detail in the book about those. Well, that uh, I had a question later on about you know are you more successful in the morning or the evenings? Um, right, sounds like you are, but I see a lot of daylight shots of you with big fish in your arms, so um, sure, it doesn't preclude sure. getting them in the mid middle of the day, right? No, no, I think it's just a matter of figuring out when when the food supply is there. And, and I, the most important thing, which I, I teach in classes and on the water, I believe that trout need three things. I think they need cover, oxygen, and food supply. That's my opinion. But when a trout is supplied cover, it feels safe, whether it be midday, early, late, evening. Once a trout feels safe, then the oxygen comes into play. Where they're hold, they need to remain safe and healthy. Then comes the food supply, but cover is one of the most important things. And even though it is daytime hours, that's when a lot of fish retreat from the open vastness of water and are forced to structure zones or areas where they can hide. And that lets us know as anglers where they could be within the water. So timing the elements and timing the time of day plays a big part in locating the trout as well. Dino in Michigan asks, uh, would there be a different approach for a rare big fish in a normal stream as opposed to targeting a similar size fish in a trophy water? Flies, retrieves, or target locations? You know, that's a great, that's a great question. Yeah, yeah that, that's a great question because that is true. You know, you have the waterways that are famous and notorious for supplying numbers and 
size of big fish, but then you have that one holdover fish, whether it's in a river that's stocked smaller trout or it's a river where this fish hasn't been touched and starts eating the smaller trout. And that leads me to the answer. Yes, I think there is a completely different approach because in many situations with large trout, the resource and environment the fish is living in supplies the fish a chance to grow. And to simply be put, it's the fact that the received cover and the food supply they receive is so dense and the population of large trout can hold within such a big body of water or condensed in a smaller space. But let's say we have a fishery where there's wild natural reproducing trout, and we know that there's numbers of bigger fish there, so there's a shot every single day. And then let's say for the sake of another river system, it's a stocked river that doesn't have natural reproduction or isn't known to supply larger trout. The fish in the system that has large trout in numbers, I would focus on the natural food supply, bugs, insects, crayfish, baitfish. For the fishery where it's not supplied larger trout, I wouldn't focus as much on the insects or the natural food supply. I would literally look at the fish that are stocked into that fishery or something else that the larger trout could feed on whether it's crayfish, juvenile trout, or let's say the river's stocked with 6 to 10-inch rainbows, then that larger fish is going to have to rely on that because larger trout or giant trout have to constantly eat to maintain their size. Yeah, there was, um, oh, you'll know this because I've forgotten the name, but um, the lake just above the frying pan river, the, the frying pan drains. Rudai? You know, yeah, yeah, Rudai Reservoir. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was talking to the uh, to someone there, and the stock. They were talking about the stocking trucks coming down to the lake, <laughs> dumping the right. fish in, and they were right. fishing the outskirts of that kind of circumference of where these fish, and picking up some huge trout out of the lake yep. that came in to feed on the, on the stocking Absolutely. trout that would be dumped. Yeah. Sure. So yeah, sure. yeah. There's no a case of what you're talking about <laughs> in a lake situation. Very much yeah. so. So. Yeah, and that's a great question because I believe that every river system will hold that one unicorn or magical giant fish. It's just a matter of if you have a chance to deliver to the fish or if you figure out what that predator specifically is looking for. So that's a great question, and I hope that other anglers have the chance to see those unique fish and and very pressured or unthought-of fisheries to hold giants. Yeah, the... um uh, it reminds me of a time, too, we were um, fishing up in Idaho and putting our boat in just below a, you know, a dam, uh, right. you know, a small dam. And while we're putting the boat in, some guys using a spin gear and dredging the bottom below. Got a 28-inch brown out of the bottom of that waterfall. Incredible. And, yeah, you know, and so the, they are in there, you know, getting to oh, yeah. can be a, a chore. But, um, but yeah. yeah, you never know where they're laying, laying around. Um, Dino also exactly. had a couple other questions he, he was talk want to know about lake run versus resident fish uh uh-huh. yeah you know, what are your let, thoughts on that absolutely so resident fish i think are more prone to hide in different locations so resident trout are better at hiding or disguising themselves in the fishery migratory fish from a lake into that river system are not as wary and not as informed on where to hide. So I think they're a little bit more exposed. 
But that also comes down to the food supply. And if a resident fish is large, being it doesn't come from still bodies of water, I would focus on insects and I would focus on large food supplies. So for that fishery where the fish doesn't have migration from a large body, I would use insects and something large. For the sake of discussion, let's say a pheasant tail to represent a nymph, and then I would trail that below a streamer, which could be a bait fish or a streamer that could be a crayfish. Migratory fish, and let's say for the sake of discussion, that fish is coming out of a still body of water, a reservoir or lake, I would then think about using a river insect, which could be a mayfly nymph or let's say a, a mid larva or a caddis, but then I would also think about what the fish is used to seeing in the still body, and instead of going small for the midge, I would use something like a chronomid. That way, the chronomid is something larger they're used to seeing, so I'm matching the river and the still water. So I think it comes down to whatever the food supply is based on where the trout lives. If it's 50-50, match the reservoir and the river. If it's 100% river, match the food supply solely in the river and try to think about what supplies the most protein. And then you mix that in, and I know this is all very uh, close to home for you when we talk about the dream sure. stream. So, um, you know, the pre-spawn and post-spawn tactics. Um, right. Talk about that because that's we're going to talk about the dream stream, but that I know that plays a role there. But it also oh, relates yeah. to lake run versus resident fish, right? So. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I'm really glad you brought that up because it brings up a, a very big topic where I think a lot of the fish that are in river systems or migrating up and around river systems from big bodies of water, I used to think pre-spawn was one of your best opportunities at a giant trout, which you can catch them at their largest state. But I've become a believer, especially after researching for the last three years on the book, that post-spawn is without question one of your best times or shots to find these larger trout that are actively feeding. And for the sake of discussion, let's say the brown trout. When brown trout are done spawning and we leave the fish alone while they naturally reproduce, they expend so much energy in a 20 or 25-pound trout, let's say the largest we could think of, has been spawning for two or three months come post-spawn, that fish not only is going to be hungry, but that's when they're willing to come over and risk chasing down a Big Mac because they really do need for survival, they need that food supply. And it's also the reward to know that you're catching the fish before and after it spawns because we really, as anglers who hunt giant trout and trophy fish, we need to make the ethical and conservation effort to leave trout alone when they spawn and we're trying to do that and focus on it with CPW and state parks in Colorado where we have educational signs or we close sections of rivers down where the trout spawn to let them naturally reproduce. But the reward there in knowing that these fish will feed and post-spawn more aggressively, that's a match made in heaven because then we can protect the trout and then have the chance to focus on them when they really are increasing their meal and diet. Well, you just said uh, spawning could take up, did you say several weeks? Oh, two to three months for the whole cycle. Two to cycle. three months? Oh, <laughs> yeah. wow. It's incredible. Like when I, when I traveled over to the White River with so many great anglers, Chad Johnson, Bill Thorne, 
David Wooten, Steve Daly, Dave Whitlock, all these wonderful individuals that are in the book, I learned quickly not only that post-spawn was effective, but some of these fish over there would start spawning at the end of November, and it would last all the way into the first part of February. So that's when February and March hits. That's why they have chances and are catching so many of the giant fish on big streamers. It's because those fish are post-spawn. They're all expending their energy, nutrients, and diets, losing pounds, and then it doesn't take long. The other cool thing, it does not take a trout long to recover. So all the scratch marks, scrapings, or battle wounds from when they spawn, we think, you know, in the past we used to think, oh, if it's post-spawn, the fish could be beat up. It's incredible within a month's time frame, not only how these fish heal up, but also how much weight they put back on. So pre- and post-spawn are great. And, and pre also works as well. Don't get me wrong, early before the spawn, can produce great results, but it's just the aggression of post-spawn that really captured my attention. I want you to talk about the ethics of fishing uh, pre-post during spawn. How sure. does one know um, whether oh, yeah. fish, with that kind of three-month time span, jeez, uh, it's kind of like, well, can I even fish during those three months? Because Yes, uh, and that, be a, that's a great yeah. question. Absolutely. And and Arlo Townsend from the Truckee River and Pyramid Lake was kind enough to give a lot of his attention and information. He covered the whole Truckee River. That's his chapter. He helped out in Pyramid Lake. But one of the things he also contributed was a great example through, I believe, 800 to 1,000 words on how to avoid or how to protect spawning fish. So that really – that was something he did that was great to the uh, to the book. But – what I like to do during the spawn, for example, let's say we're, we're fishing during the spawn, instead of concentrating on the species of fish that's spawning, you have great opportunities for opposite species. So if the browns are spawning, a lot of the rainbows, cutthroats, and cutbo can be spawned or concentrating on the eggs or the flesh during that time. And the same can be said if you're dealing with the spring, a lot of the browns can be doing that. Then it comes down to, in my opinion, avoiding spawning ground. So instead of fishing riffled runs or shallow water, a lot of these trout prefer to spawn in sand or two- to three-inch cobblestone. So I'm a believer in going deep, avoiding shallow riffles. And then once you see or locate a spawning bed where it's gravel that's been moved out because of the fanning motion of tails and the migrating and moving motion of these trout, you'll see a bed where the cobblestone's lifted up below a depression, and the water usually around the spawning bed is clear. So if we can avoid those grounds, fish the deep runs below, and then concentrate on other species, I think we stand a better chance of avoiding the spawn and waiting for those fish to be more effective. Good, good. That's uh, very helpful. Let's take another quick break, Landon, and um, we'll be right back and plenty more to talk about. So hang tight, everyone. Looking for that shot at a permit? Whipray Key Fishing Lodge in Belize is where you want to be. When you stay at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge, you're on a private island and are only minutes away from some of the finest permit fishing in Belize. Whipray Key is just a 30-minute boat ride from Placencia. Once you're there, you'll be fishing Permit Alley, one of Belize's best fisheries, and you won't be taking long boat rides to get started. You'll fish with world-class guides like Daniel Cabral, whose family has fished the area for over 30 years. Want to switch it up and fish for tarpon and bonefish and make it a grand slam? They can make it happen at Whipray Key Fishing Lodge. 
Book your next adventure now. Visit WhipRayKeyFishingLodge.com. That's Whipray, C-A-Y-E, FishingLodge.com. You're listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio, and we're talking with Landon Mayer about the hunt for giant trout. If you'd like to ask Landon a question, just go to our homepage at AskAboutFlyFishing.com and use that Q&A text box to send us your question. We'll receive your question immediately, and we'll try to answer as many of them as possible on the show tonight. Let me just check in with uh, those questions, Landon, and see what uh, what we've got. Um, oh, uh, Phil in, uh, in Kentucky asks, are there different methods you'd prefer when fishing lakes versus streams for giant trout? Do you throw big streamers for these big trout? Great question. So I do mix it up for still waters compared to rivers. In rivers, I think that the trout rely on food supplies or the meals to be delivered closer to their face or their viewing lane. So it's almost like they want delivery or fast food. Still waters, I find that trout are more willing to chase and move because in still waters, trout are in constant motion their whole life when they feed. So for rivers, an example, when I do streamers or I do larger bugs, I try to maximize the retrieve within a short space. So where instead of doing long, slow strips with a streamer or heavy mens with a nymph, I'm going to use micro mens and small retrieves to keep that fly moving within a 10-foot radius. On still waters, it can be opposite where I will maximize movement and I will maximize the length of the retrieve because I know that fish is searching and there's a good chance it's willing to come over and take. And for rivers, I'm more of a fan to do the dry dropper scenario and set up something higher in the water column. And for still waters, I'm a bigger fan of dealing with deeper nymph rigs. And for still waters, I'm a fan of using three-foot increments where I go down three feet from three, six to nine to 12 and determine the depth where in comparison to rivers, I know that the fish are more willing and it's more common for them to lift and feed anywhere from six feet to the surface because a lot of their food supplies are on top of the water. So we'll, I will change it up that way. And also the diets are incredibly different. The mayflies that trout prefer in still waters can often be calabatus. The mayflies in river systems can be bluing olives, pale morning duns, and trichos. So you really do want to understand the food supply. And then lastly, rivers tend to have smaller insects still waters go on the larger side for insects and the chance to feed. So let me throw a situation out. You say I'm uh, fishing still water. It's uh, dusk. I'm catching a lot of trout on like a caddis dropper. Um, Sure. And the fish aren't taking anything on the surface. They're all taking those those droppers just below the surface. Uh Yep. I'm catching a lot of 14 to 16 inch trout, but nothing really big. Is there an opportunity mm-hmm. there to catch a larger fish by using a different tactic in, in that situation? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And that's where you would go with the attractor. So if I'm realizing quickly that those smaller fish have keyed in on the moving meal, like we mentioned before, where caddis can be something large trout don't always prefer because they move, skitter, and skate or dive so the large trout isn't willing to expend that energy. In that situation, I would actually think of the trout feeding on the caddis to do two things, to either become 
the food supply for the larger trout if they're small enough fish, or they start attracting the larger trout. Anytime, and I think a lot of us have been there, where if you hook a smaller fish, it head shakes, rattles, and rolls. When that happens, I think it's like sending out the Morse code to where the larger fish will come over and investigate because they either think it's food or they think they're missing out on the meal. So in that situation, I would think about fishing the parameter around the actively feeding smaller fish with a larger streamer or something that would cause a lot of disturbance or commotion on the surface. You could do a large streamer to match the trout, like a game changer, Blaine Chocolate's finesse changer, or you could do something on top of the water like a larger damselfly imitation or a larger caddis or even a hopper and see if you can trigger a response. Okay. Okay. Good idea. Thanks. Um, you bet. I'm going to combine these two questions. Uh, Phil had another question on the Internet. He says, are you typically able to land these big trout quickly and release them in good shape? And then we had another question from uh, Mike uh, in Missouri. He says, ask what the best position of a fly rod when fighting a giant trout and how to land a giant trout. So maybe you could combine those two in, uh, in landing and handling and getting oh, the fish yeah, no, in good shape. Absolutely, and I do believe that you can get a large trout, a 20-plus pound trout, or let's say a high teens pound trout in within minutes. The largest fish that you hook in your lifetime, I'm a believer that we can land these fish in 10 minutes or less. That, I believe, starts with the hook set, but also the head shake. So the first and last 30 seconds of a fight are the most important thing to concentrate on. And I went over this in, in heavy detail in the site Fishing for Trout book with Stack Pool Books. When you first hook a fish, the initial response and reaction in the first 30 seconds is very intense. So we need to absorb that power and not think about handling the fish, but simply holding on. The last 30 seconds is the same thing. So in the book, and we talk about 10 tips in the hunt for giant trout and fighting fish, once you hook the fish, we need to understand that the first and most important thing is to get the trout to head shake. When fish run, all they have to do is thump their tail, and they can shoot 10, 20 feet. But when a large trout head shakes, it's so aggressive, their head almost touches their tail. So seven head shakes could literally take 25% of the fight away from a large trout. So the positioning for this is instead of thinking the term hook set, I believe in lifting on the fish. Whether it's strip setting, you're going to lift to the side. Whether you're doing a vertical set, you're going to lift. And the position of the rod that is to the ideal location is going to be with your elbow to the side and the rod in front of you in a rainbow arc. That puts all the pressure and the power in the butt section, the first three feet of the rod. And from there, your arm can absorb all the power supplied, whether it's a run, a head shake, the fish swimming back to you, or even a jump. But that really is the nuts and bolts. And from 2009 when I wrote the site Fishing for Trout book until now, that is, that is the code I live by and what I truly do believe in is the first and last portion of the fight and just really going all that, that information and detail and knowing that we start out just trying to absorb the power, then throughout the fight we apply power, and at the end of the fight we absorb the power, and that helps prevent reaching the breaking point. Okay, great. 
Oh, we've got a bunch of questions coming in here on the internet. Um, uh, Ron Ron Burnett in Wheat Ridge. What color shade of lenses do you like on your sunglasses? Oh, great question. Great question. And I I still am, and I've always been a fan of Smith Optics and a great company. And the, my favorite lens, the new lens that came out with a few years ago, is Chromapop, where glasses in the past used to be glass with 12 layers of polarization in front of it which allowed us the clarity to see past the distraction of glare on the water surface. Now the chromapop lens is a polarized material that they make the lens out of. So it has more clarity. It enhances color. For those who have prescriptions, they can now bend the lens to where it wraps around your face and no longer has to be straight. And I'm a believer in brown as the primary color that combats bright and dark conditions. So brown, Silver Creek brown, if you don't have that, then copper. It's dark enough for light days, yet it's light enough for dark days. And what I learned in the book in traveling, research for the hunt for giant trout, is that there's a time where I need glasses to see into the water, to really disperse glare, to defeat glare. But then there's a time where I need glasses to intensify light, to where I'm no longer sight fishing. I'm just trying to maximize the last magic hour of the day. And that magic hour can happen by using the low-light igniters. So the Chromapop and the low-light igniters by Smith Optics are my two lens colors. So Chromapop, brown and copper, lens uh, low-light igniters, which are amber and allow 42% light transfer. Okay, great. Um, Question from Brian Adams in Bakersfield, California. It says, how stealthy are you going after these fish? Are you using structure to sneak up, staying low? Great question. That's an awesome question. So when I teach classes on, on hunting trout, you really do want to think about your approach. And it sounds cliche. You want to walk and mimic the motions of a bird, but it's so true. So I do use a lot of caution. I, I try to match what's around me and match what I'm, my apparel to the surroundings of vegetation or rock walls. So I'm very cautious about what's behind my body. And then I do try to mold my body to look like structure around the fish. But I think the biggest thing there, too, is just to evaluate what's in front of you. Instead of just going in for the kill and trying to go right after the fish immediately to hook up, think about where you can position yourself and then try to just remain out of view, or if worst-case scenario you can't, then match the surrounding vegetation, mold to the structure, and stay as close to the water surface as possible. But it's almost 75, if not 80% of the time, I am really cautious about sneaking in and trying to get as close to the trout. And the beauty there is the closer you get, the more you can identify the trout's behavior. How do you balance that with, with trying to, you know, to sight fish. Um, you bet. In, yeah, in that, you know, don't you have to kind of get high at times to see the fish, or is it you do. pop your head yeah. up and pop it back down? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or you go fish with a buddy. The buddy system's awesome, too. Like, that's, that's the advantage of fishing with a friend or loved one. But for sure, there's a high bank for viewing and a low bank for fishing. And whenever you are sighting fish, you want to keep distance evaluate where the fish is. Once you find the target, use a marker in or around the river or where the fish is holding. And then I would say at least half the time you have a situation where you can't see the fish anymore. So 
you want to cite it, go into delivering, or use that buddy system. But I think that all starts with caution and how you approach the river. Buddy system being uh, they're telling you whether you're on the fish or not, or uh, <laughs> yeah. guiding or you. Telling you telling you if it's a good or bad cast or you blew the hook set. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> nice yeah. buddy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But no, the yeah. buddy system is. So you can verbally, you can help somebody walk them into the cast or tell them where the fish is, or they can just give you the reference, like the fishes go one foot further, cast a little bit higher. Just that relationship between the casting and the sighting angler. That's what the buddy system is really about. And, and I'm excited, too, to announce that in – July of this year, the book that we came out with, Sight Fishing for Trout in 2009, we are going to have so much more of this detail in the second edition of that book, which is going to be released this August. So we have Volume 2, Sight Fishing for Trout with Stack Pool Books, and a lot of that technical and detailed information will be in that book as well. Very cool. Good. Glad to hear it. Sounds like another show. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you bet. Yeah. Um, Joe in uh, Arkansas asks, uh, on tailwater rivers or streams, do the giants tend to become more active during rising water? Uh, do they concentrate in the deeper pools during falling water? Oh, great question. You're, and you really are going to love this book. So in this book, what I did is I, I devoted three days per waterway where I went out and interviewed people. If it's water I had never fished before, and I wanted to really have a chance to fish these waterways and get to know the individuals that provided the text. Within that time frame, usually what that meant is I would show up in the early morning of the first day, fish the afternoon, fish all day the second day, and then the morning of the third day, and then rush back. What I quickly realized in trying to do these quick hits on the fisheries and visit these locations and anglers is how vital timing is, and a lot of that is based on chasing water. So these giant fish, when they're in a system where, let's say, the water can go from 5,000 to 30,000, instead of holding in the middle of the river or below a dock somewhere where they're comfortable, what I learned from everybody in the book and all of the chapters with big waterways like Lake Tenny Como, Branson, Missouri, the White River, the South Holston, a lot of these waterways that are producing high-generated flow, I believe it's more important to fish while the water is coming up, well, what I also learned is when that bubble is moving down and the water starts to drop, if you can be there on the rise and then be there when it levels out and right at the drop, those fish are then forced to the edge. They're actively feeding. And then when it starts to drop a little bit, you might get a hint of that clarity. But I would say, on average, the rise or spike in flow is definitely when those larger trout are forced to the edge and start to become aggressive. Okay, okay. Um, uh, Grant in uh, British Columbia asks, are large trout more line shy, and do they take more realistic-looking flies? That's a really good question. So I think, I think it depends on the water for the line selection. They can be very line shy if they're used to having water clarity throughout some portion of the day or some portions of the seasons where they actively feed. If the water is high and the water is off color a majority of the time, then I also think that they're not line shy. The other thing we have to be careful of is the waters that you fish for these giants, you also need to think about 
what type of weather you'll see consistently. If, you know, in British Columbia or Washington or any of these spots where we're known, you're known to have more weather and cloud cover, the fish may not be as line shy as they would here in Colorado where we get 300 days of sun. So I think it's water clarity, and I also think it's sky clarity that helps you determine that. It really gives you a chance to, to make more productive days out of disguising your rig. And, I, you know, when you're delivering flies, if you find out that the fish are shy or selective, then I think that does result in how you're going to deliver to them. And that may be increasing your length of your leader, which I do a lot with nymphs and with dries and also streamers. And then another line I've become a fan of with scientific anglers is the sonar series with the Titan clear tip. It has a, it has a taper like a weight forward floating line, so it's a gem to cast. And the first 15 feet of the line is clear. So if I attach that to a fluorocarbon leader, if there are fish that are line shy, I can then pr- produce great presentations with streamers and nymphs, and I don't have to worry about spooking the fish. Hmm. Good. Good tip. Okay, we have uh, Jim in Cincinnati. He says, does going after giant trout mean mastering one specialized technique, i.e. streamers, or can you be an average fisherman with a few average skills? Great question. So it can be specialized, but I believe that in the years of guiding, I've learned that the most effective anglers is not based on a specific skill. I think it's based on being well-traveled. So instead of just thinking of one way to deliver to the fish, if you are well-traveled, meaning you can produce with dries, nymphs, and streamers, or if you're simply comfortable fishing those three disciplines, then it encourages you to change disciplines quicker than somebody who's conditioned to one. So if I'm used to fishing nymphs all day and I'm, you know, I see a fish that's looking towards the surface, but I'm reluctant to change to a dry fly, I could miss the opportunity of that fish. But if I'm used to fishing all three disciplines and build confidence, then I'll go in and have the chance to change or switch up. So I personally believe the more you switch and the more unique or different ways you deliver, the better chance you have of finding out if that fish wants a dead drifting nymph, chase a streamer, or is willing to lift to eat a dry fly. What are the three most important things you need to understand or learn to catch a giant trout? Three most important things. Well, number one, 25% of landing a giant trout is luck. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great landing. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) First and foremost, if you say a prayer, that's a great start because when you hook these, you know, when you hook these beasts, and it's so true, you know, we want everything to go right. So definitely just, you know, have a positive attitude about going after the fish. And when, when you do go after them, the first thing, I believe it's timing. You, you need the time when the fish are active, not, not necessarily in the system, and that relates to spawning trout, but let's say a fish is spawning, it's in the river, that fish isn't active. When we concentrate on post-spawn, that's when the activity starts. So I believe it's timing, whether it be the year, the month, or the day. Following timing, I think, is understanding the food. So the next approach is to really research what food is in that system, why did the fish get so large, 
and how can I imitate that food? And then third is just really, as we just mentioned before, just being creative, just really thinking outside of the box or a different way of delivering. If if everybody's throwing nymphs, why not throw drives? I think those are the three ways, in addition to saying the prayer, that are <laughs> going to give you a better chance of going after them. <laughs> always, always bring some luck with you, huh? Don't that <laughs> you got you. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Let's talk about some of the, uh, uh, and I'll mix, we, we did get more questions in here, and I'll mix them in as we go here. Uh, but what, let, let's talk about some of these fisheries in the, the time we have left. Um, what's sure. the most challenging fishery that, that you included in your book, from your perspective, the most challenging? That's an awesome fishery. question. You bet. So I think the most challenging fishery out of all that are in the book, one of them was Lower Tulare Creek. That was a tough fishery. The It's in Alaska, and I think, you know, I've guided in Alaska on the Knack-Knack in 2000, in early 2000s, 2002, and I realized quickly in Alaska, you know, it's common for people to say there's so many fish, it's basically catching, not fishing. And there are times in many places where that can be true. It's just a lot of fun, and it's really, it's just beautiful. It's God's country. But then you show up to these narrow waterways like Tulare Creek or some of the other river systems, the Knack-Knack or the Quijack, the Kenai, and there's those times, especially on Lower Tulare, where the water's clear and it's flowing into Lake Iliamna. And I've never seen a situation where fish were so selective but also so wary to where if you even were kneeling and leaned over, even covered with brush and shrubs in front of you, the moment that your head broke the plane of the river's edge, these giant fish would spook out. So that place was incredibly challenging, not to mention it was a smaller waterway, so we couldn't come up and walk on the edge, be perpendicular. We had to be extreme angles up or downstream. And really what was neat about it, it forced us to think about how can we make a delivery or how can we make a productive presentation when we're so uncomfortable and these are angles or positions we've never dealt with before. So it forced us to really think outside of the box. And long story short, Bill Betts with Iliamna River Lodge, who was kind enough to contribute for that section of the book, and also Brian Kraft from Sportsman's Lodge on the Knack-Knack and the Quijack. It was Nancy Morris' line as well on the Knack-Knack. What's unique about Nancy is when I guided in 2002, she was swinging for giant rainbows on the Knack, 10 years prior, so she has so much knowledge in the pages. But on these fisheries, instead of going with something that would be a dead drift like eggs or flesh, it was all about swinging and streamers. So there's a lot of great insight in the book on that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that I, I wouldn't have expected you to pick a fishery in yeah. Alaska because uh, – I know. Yeah. I know. It was um, amazing. We, we were there three days. And I'll never forget running at 4 a.m. by headlamp. And Bill Betts is an enormous individual. He's, he's 6'6", 240. He looks like a giant football player. Wonderful person, but every run or every stride for him was two for me. And I'll never forget <laughs> running by head. Yeah, I know, by headlamp in the darkness, spooking grizzly bears into the alders and thinking, not only is this river challenging, but I hope we survive to get another day. <laughs> so oh, yeah. It's, it's always, yeah, it was, it was very unique. But there you go. I mean, that's a great example of showing up and 
dealing with expectations from everything we've seen over the years. The next thing you know, it's bluebird, sunny day, clear, low water, and you really have to pull out so many ideas or really come up with something new or unique and how you can deliver even when you're not comfortable with it. But that's a prime example of drives, nymphs, and streamers and just being prepared and be able to deliver all three. Were they, do you think the fish were, were spooky uh, from humans or from, um, you know, bears no, I think and, it's, and eagles? I think it's and, bears. Yeah. yeah, bears and eagles. But I think the other thing that we ran into is that in, in Alaska, similar to Washington and other locations, other states, is that you're used to having cloud cover. There's typically weather or systems moving through the landscape. And when we showed up and you get clear water matched with bluebird, sunny, clear skies, there's twice the amount of predators, and that's exactly it. The fish were immediately yeah. nervous. So hmm. we, ended up, we ended up doing some streamer fishing along the banks and dealing with some unique ways of delivering eggs and flesh to where it's a, a long – I mean, some of these drifts were 40, 50 feet and we were trying to get these flies to move against the bank, and it was really, you know, Bill came up with some great ideas, and we just executed on them, and, again, that's all in the pages. There's some, some great examples in the text about that, but it was a lot of fun for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, home water of yours, the South Platte River sure. and uh, the Dream Stream. Uh, you sure. included that in your book. Um, I don't know how you could leave it out, so <laughs> right. that didn't, that didn't right. surprise me. Sure. Tell people that have never fished this, what makes this um, fishery unique? What kind of species of trout are you targeting in this section of uh, sure. uh, so, South Platte? Yeah, thanks for the question. And, and, and it really it holds a, a dear place in my heart. I love the South Platte River. To start off, I think the South Platte's unique because so many fisheries are supplied a river that moves through landscape or terrain. And it may vary a little bit, but most of it's we're used to the flow or conditions or the landscape. The cool thing about the South Platte is being broken up into five tailwaters, each stretch flows different. Each stretch looks different. So it's like having five rivers in one. And what makes the Dream Stream unique is that it's three-and-a-half linear, five-and-a-half winding miles of river between two still bodies of water. The river's narrow, and the fish migrate up out of the deep waters of 11-mile reservoir. And I think it's unique also because there's naturally reproducing wild brown trout. And while I love giant trout and the opportunity to go after them, I respect even more than catching these fish the fact that they can live and survive since the early 1970s and grow to proportions where they can reach or exceed 30 inches. So that that's kind of an introduction to the fishery. It's really cool, too, the fact that you can see trout that are big enough to where you look at them and think it almost doesn't belong in that stretch or section of water. And that's why the dream stream is unique is because you're dealing with migratory fish that come out of 100 feet of water in the 11-mile reservoir into a smaller river system. And with that note in mind and the amount of pressure that's coming in with anglers on that river or other rivers in the U.S., we've also lately really started concentrating for the drain stream on trying to promote shutting down locations for the spawn. And if that's not possible, my clients last year were kind enough to donate signs that they had made, which are educational signs that state 
spawning trout are in this area for future generation safety. Please don't fish in this zone. So that's one of the things that we're working towards with right now, uh, Jacob at the state parks at 11 miles on board and Mark Lamb with Colorado Parks and Wildlife are, are trying to help in that fight to really protect the resource. But that's what makes the dream stream unique. And I love it because you could have a fish that's eating eggs in the spring or fall or a fish that's eating insects during the summer. Simply put, when Charlie Myers and John Barr looked at each other back in the early 80s and said, "What I, you know, was I dreaming? Is that, did that really just happen? Hence the name, the dream stream. I mean, you never know when you run into a giant about every other bend. So it's an amazing fishery, and I just love teaching on it and calling it home. Yeah, yeah. Um, any particular techniques that you use that, that uh, really produce in that sense? Not so much. I mean, I, you know, that's a question I receive a lot, and it, it's really – it's not so much the technique. I think it's more of what we've discussed in today's program, and it's just matching the food supply. But one of the biggest things is using stealth, just trying to think like a trout ninja where you remain out of view or you can make a presentation from a low position – try to disguise your rig or match match the food supply. You know, don't just think about the insects. There's crayfish on the dream stream. There's bugs on the dream stream. But it really is just understanding the diet and staying out of view because it's it's one of the largest plateau basins in North America where the dream stream resides in South Park. And Colorado gets 300-plus days of sun a year. So these fish are, you know, highly exposed and can be very wary at any given time. Yeah, yeah. Um, we got a question from uh, Kenny from South Park. Now, is this Kenny from the South Park cartoon, or is this <laughs> Kenny Good from question. St. Louis, Missouri? Good question. Um, you, yeah, um, I think he knows you. Anyway, looking, he says, looking forward to fishing with you in March. My question is, have you gone to fishing Euro-style nymphing in the past year, or are you still nymphing with clear indicators? It seems your home water is the dream stream would be very conducive to Euro-style nymphing. If you haven't, are there any drawbacks that you see to this style of fly fishing? Yeah, great question. No, I, I think that style, and, and I know you have Devin Olson coming up on your show, and there's some, yeah. you'll learn some great techniques from Devin and from George Daniel and Lance Egan. I've, I have adapted the tension drifting and Euro-style or Czech style of, of nymph fishing. For, for me, and, you know, I was having this conversation the other day with Ed Engel where, when I started guiding on the South Platte, Ed Engel was one of the senior guides, and he gave a lot of information and mentorship in addition to John Barr and so many other great people. But we've, we've done a lot of tension drifting over the years where it's vertical tension leading the anchor fly below and trying to feed that through seams and deep runs. So the answer, Kenny, is yes, we have adapted that. I have looked into it and started using more of those rigs as they become more popular and advanced over the last five years. And one of the things I've learned, too, is it's it's knowing when to use or where to use that. And a few years back, I went to Pennsylvania and fished the Spring Creeks and, most importantly, went up with, with George Daniel and fished Fishing Creek in Pennsylvania. And George taught me some great techniques and just watching him deliver and effectively cover the water, I learned that you can tension Euro-style in deep and also shallow water. So that's one of my goals is to continue delivering those ways. But, yes, that's absolutely, in addition to swinging flies with indicators low or without indicators, high-sticking and delivering between or around structure and in pocket water plays a big part. 
Okay. Uh, Matt in uh, Greenwood Village, Colorado. He says, Landon, in your book, Sight Fishing for Trout, you provide excellent guidance as to what equipment and techniques we should use for spotting fish. But what do you do in a case like Colorado's Dream Stream, where the banks are pounded by prospecting uh, fishermen all day and fish are holding on the bottom? Yeah, that's when timing comes into play. I mean, simply put, when the banks are walked on or the water's pressured and the fish stop feeding, there's, you know, one thing I've accepted, and I think we all learn this as we travel in pursuit of large trout or just in pressured waterways in general, that there are many situations where the fish don't feed. And if they don't feed, we may have to give up for that day or that specific time. But that doesn't mean when conditions change and it's low light or bad weather, we can have another shot at that fish because we know where it is or just being patient to where there's a chance for that fish to come become comfortable after it's been pressured for the length of the day. So I believe you just have to time it and be patient and honestly just accept that during that moment in time we may not have an opportunity to deliver, but at like a scouting mission we can always think about ways and different time frames to come back, and I think that all really boils down to low light and dark waters. Okay. Uh, a couple more questions came in here on the Internet. Um, Otto Perry in Aurora, Colorado, he says, what is the better flow of river water to fish in? As on your website, I see flows uh, 57 feet, 3 seconds. I don't know if that's right. Um, what is low and to high? What is just right flow? Yeah, I, think I don't even know flows, what he's yeah. yeah, I think what it is is flows. So he's referencing... I have a lot of the stream flows now with our new website. We have stream flows available. So you can oh, okay. see flows in the South Platte, the Blue River, the Arkansas, the headwaters of the South Platte. So then, thanks for the question and the support and looking at the website. Low flows, in my opinion, on any river system, doesn't matter where I'm fishing, if I notice that the water level is 50 CFS or lower, then I will approach with major caution and also I'll realize that the fish has probably lost half of its productive holding zones, whether it be deep runs, the bank's edge. So there's a couple things that come into play with that, is that low water, you then have to use more stealth, but it also means that the fish are, are condensed. So they're going to be in smaller areas. So instead of fishing as you would to large, vast water, really just try to dissect the water, knowing that the fish only have so many spots to hold. So 50 is low. High flow for me is when any river breaks over 300, the currents start to change. So instead of just having the river bottom remaining the same, that's when you can get bed load transfer, which I learned a lot about this from Jason Randall. If you haven't checked out his books, they're incredible. But bed load transfer where the river bottom changes because there's so much current speed and fluctuation, then fish are forced to the edge, they spread out, then you can fish long, vast, and wide. So it's between those two, and I'm a fan of anything from 150 to 250 when we're dealing with narrow, small waterways, I think are good flows. And if you have larger waters, you know, the same thing, 5,000, 30,000, just kind of think of it in the same respect where 5,000, they're condensed, 30,000, they spread out and are less exposed. So then we have the beauty of between, but just knowing different ways to dissect or fish wide and fish long. Well, we're running out of time here, but um, uh, I want to just touch on a, a few of these 
uh, fisheries that you have in your book, and maybe you can just quickly sure. um, talk about what makes them unique. Uh, Pyramid Lake in Nevada. Oh, yeah, yeah, which is an incredible place. The Pyramid Lake is amazing. I we fell in love with this eight years, nine years ago. We'd do annual trips there. Myself, Jeff Lines, Angus Drummond, and Phil Trelia, all really good friends and guides. When we exposed ourselves to pyramid, we learned quickly that not only is it a productive fishery, but now that the pilot peak strain, Lahontan cutthroats, are put back into the system as a conservation effort, and they're growing to eventually hopefully reach the proportions they did in the 20s where they could be 50, 60 pounds, it is one of your best shots right now in the U.S. to catch a trout over 10 pounds on the fly in the course of one week. I mean, they're they're getting fish over 20 pounds, and it's just a unique place. The drop lines are extreme, 2 feet to 50 feet drop lines or 30-foot drop lines. So you have to learn how to manage depth control. But it's an incredible fishery, and, and Arlo Townsend and Doug Olette were kind enough to really provide great information in the book and insight, and they have some wonderful flies as well. So it's definitely one to fish, and producing some of the biggest fish in the U.S. right now. Yeah, and we have, uh, we have a show on the Pyramid Lake, so if folks want to search our yeah. archive, you can get a, a show on that one, too. Yeah, another one that great history. Yeah, uh, another one that caught my eye was South Holston River in Tennessee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well, a couple things there. I, I was first exposed to probably some of the best barbecue I've ever had in my life, so that's uh, <laughs> yeah. not only <laughs> – not only is it good fishing, but the eats are incredible. Thanks to yeah. thanks to Blaine Chocolate and, and Patrick Folkrod and everybody up there, Jimmy. Everybody was kind enough to really take the time out during that week. But the South Holston's incredible. So I'll put it this way. When Jay Nichols, who's a close friend of mine and an amazing editor and now videographer, is, he came back one time after fishing it with Blaine, and he looked at me and said, man, he goes, Landon, if I were to name one river in the U.S., that had more fish that I thought could potentially be brown or be 20 pounds. He was referring to brown trout. He said it was the South Holston. And then once I dove into the, the minds of these two great individuals and other anglers that wrapped that fishery, it was, it was incredible when Blaine or Patrick talked about it because the fish would literally be willing to feed at high flows anything that looked like bait. And then at low flows would have the frame of mind to concentrate on eating small midges and to know that you could get a fish 30 inches, whether it be, you know, pounding hard against the bank. If you don't enjoy streamers, then you could literally nymph fish productive water. And the fact that the fish can understand their diets and also hide so well. I mean, the flows in this river at high flow is only up to 2,000 or 3,000 CFS. It's not incredibly high compared to like the white. But it's extreme and drastic where it could go from, you know, a couple hundred CFS and blast up. And next thing you know, you've got these brown trout that are holding on the edge of the river, which is basically somebody's extended lawn. It was, it was quite the experience. So it's one to, one to experiment with and, and get to know Blaine and Patrick and everybody else and enjoy some good eats along the way. Yeah. Uh, and lastly, uh, but not lastly as far as your book is concerned, <laughs> but uh, White River sure. in Arkansas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the White River in Arkansas is just – and, you know, the same with the White River and Chuck Grease and Jeff Duclos, who were kind enough to to the pages over there, is the 
the fishery itself is just amazing how many opportunities you have. But the White River, for me, what made it so special is I remember watching Dave Whitlock and a lot of his teachings and everything he gave us in the 80s and 90s and seeing these images of, seriously, they look like dinosaur brown trout that he was holding up. And Dave Whitlock and Emily Whitlock were kind enough to contribute a lot of great information to this book. Like I said, in addition to Chad Johnson, Steve Daly, David Watton, and Bill Thorne. But one thing about the white which blew me away is that you're sitting there fishing a river system that can, no joke, go from six, 700 CFS to 30,000. I mean, heavy enough current, it could sweep you out of your wading boots. But then to know that you're fishing in a river where there are still to this day brown trout up to 40, 50 pounds living in the water that you're touching, it just blew my mind. And watching these fish eat the giant streamers, and most importantly, watching these giant fish navigate such heavy, turbulent water was, was an amazing experience. But I would say if you want to up your streamer game, the, the White River and the South Holston really will take you to that next level if you let any of the great individuals in the book teach you on, on how to deliver a streamer effectively. It's a great opportunity. Yeah, and again, we have a show with Davey Watton on, uh, uh, on the White River as well, so check that out. Yeah, Davey. Yeah, get, yeah he's pick a, Davey's mind. He's, the cool thing about Davey is spending time with him on his boat is he is a master at wet flies and swinging, and you can really use a lot of that information on your home waters. So, yeah, right. for sure check out this show. It's going to be great. Yeah, 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 very good. Well, we're out of time, Landon, um, but uh, we covered quite a bit of ground, I think, and uh, yeah, found right. a lot of good information. So hope everybody's That's happy. Right. Um, but stick with me, folks. We're going to give away a few prizes. So we're going to give away that Fly Fishers uh, one-year membership to Fly Fishers International, one-year subscription to Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, copy of Landon's book, The Hunt for Giant Trout, courtesy of Stackpole Books, and uh, Landon's new DVD as well. So stick with me for just another minute or so, and we'll give those away. The Bristol Bay region of southwest Alaska is home to the largest runs of wild salmon on the planet, and some of the best trophy rainbow trout fishing found anywhere. Pebble Mine still remains a threat to the region, and 2 million acres of federal lands may also be at risk. The entire fly fishing industry is united in this epic conservation battle. Anglers from across the country are joining the fight. Be one of them. Visit SaveBristolBay.org to learn more and to find out how you can get involved. Again, that's SaveBristolBay.org. And just a quick reminder to everyone before you leave the website tonight, please take a minute and give us your feedback about the show. You can find a link on our homepage in the section under tonight's show that says, what did you think of the show? Just click on that link and leave your comments. We'd really appreciate it. So now it's time to give away some of these great prizes we have. The winners are randomly selected from our show's registration database. And if you didn't register for tonight's show, it's too late now. But make sure you do so for the next show so you don't miss out on some of these incredible prizes we have to offer. If you are the lucky winner, we'll contact you after the show and provide you with information on how to receive your prize. Uh, so the first thing coming up is a one-year membership to Fly Fishers International. And to learn more about Fly Fishers International, go to flyfishersinternational.org. Again, that's flyfishersinternational.org. Great organization to support and be part of, so uh, check them out. Um, our winner for this is Chris... Simmons, Chris Simmons in Utah. So congratulations, Chris. Congratulations. Sure gonna, yeah, enjoy that membership, uh, as we all do. And um, the next 
thing we're giving away is Fly Fishing and Tying Journal, one-year subscription. Find out more about that at amatobooks.com, another great resource for fly fishing, periodicals, and books. So check them out. Our winner there is Mark Hutchings. Hutchings, Mark Hutchings in Utah as well. So um, Utah is very well represented tonight. <laughs> Good That's for awesome. you. Yeah, congratulations, congratulations all. Um, so now let's give away Landon's book. Um, I'm going to risk this question because uh, make it a little hard because uh, stuff is worth it. Landon's <laughs> stuff is worth it. <laughs> so uh, let me uh, – I asked Landon a question. What was the most challenging fishery he included in his book? What was the name of that? fishery let me know and uh the first person that answers it correctly will get landon's book the hunt for giant trout and the runner-up will get uh, the new dvd mastering the short game from landon mayor as well so um uh give me an answer there and let's see if we had anybody really paying attention here landon you bet in it if anybody's interested in the video too don't forget you can go to www mastertheshortgame.com, and that's where you can download that new video with Headwater Media Group. Okay. Great. Uh, let's see here. Uh, we got uh, White River. That wasn't it. Um, Alaskan Creek. That's close, <laughs> but not a close. creek in Alaska. That's close. Yep. Um We've got, uh, I think this one is, the, the spelling's not quite right, but I think we got it. Um, he has low, Lower Tolera Creek. Yeah. Pretty darn close lower. given uh, yeah, lower. what we got. Yeah. So um, that Good would job. be John Gilbert in Spokane. So, congratulations, um, John. Yeah, John, uh, congratulations on winning that uh, book. So, John, what you'll have to do, and the uh, next person that wins too is, Send me your shipping information in that same text box. I got your name. I got your email address. Just need your shipping address, and uh, and then we'll get you taken care of. Uh, and let's see. We're looking for a runner up. Nick Nick Nat. No, nope, that's not it. Uh, some river in Alaska. <laughs> okay. Uh, Alaska streams with narrow banks. Uh, and let's see. It looks like um, we've got uh, Telerik. Uh, that's pretty darn close. So uh, that would be Richard yep. Scalone in Mount Pleasant, uh, Pennsylvania. So, Richard, oh, you're the winner yeah, of the, uh, the new DVD. Um, and that, that, one, landed. that one will be absolutely. And I'll, I'll be able to sign that one as well. And then those are, those are being delivered and available at the end of the week. So you, you'll be able to receive that next week. Great, great. Good to know. So, uh, guys, thanks for paying attention and playing. And uh, Richard and uh, John, uh, congrats on, on winning those prizes. So, again, Richard, um, please send your information to uh, in that same text box. Again, I need your shipping information, and uh, we'll get you taken care of. So, congratulations all. Okay. Um, hey, Landon, appreciate it again for taking your time out and squeezing me in. My God, I didn't know you were that close on that timing but no uh, glad we made it happen so uh, you're yeah, a busy man. Pleasure, man yeah thank and, you very uh, much yeah, we'll have to it. do it again this uh late summer when you're 
the new book comes out again. So uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, the second edition of, of Site Fishing for Trout. I'd be happy to do it. And it's always a pleasure. And I really do appreciate the opportunity as well, Roger. You do a great show. Well, great, great. Well, thanks for being here. Uh, hopefully all of you have found the archive on our website. If you haven't, just look for the link on our top line of our menu on the home page or any page, and uh, you'll find all of our shows, over 285 shows now. You can search by any keyword, keyword phrase, trout tarpon, Madison River, uh, sight fishing, <laughs> uh, trophy trout, whatever, and you'll find a lot of good educational shows there. So go ahead and explore, and um, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what you find. Our next broadcast will be on February 20th, uh, 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern. And on that show, I'll interview Devin Olson. And our topic for the show will be competitive fly fishing. So uh, Devin has uh, competed in many, many fly fishing events around the world. And he's written a, a book on tactical fly fishing that, uh, where he's uh, used a lot of these techniques in competitive fly fishing. So learn what he's used there in your everyday fishing, and uh, I'm sure you'll You'll uh, gain a lot from that. So join us for that show. Um, we'd also like to thank Fly Fishers International, Amato Books, Stackpole Books, Bookbreak Key Fishing Lodge, Baja Fly Fishing, and Watermaster for sponsoring our show tonight. And don't forget to visit our website, askaboutflyfishing.com, and make sure you're signed up to receive our announcements so you don't miss out on any of our future broadcasts. Thanks for listening to Ask About Fly Fishing Internet Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. That's it. Good night, everyone, and good fishing. Well, 